you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're going to be looking uh, at verses 47 through 53. If you were in Bible study this morning, uh, we had, uh, what was it, say 38 through the end of the chapter, and I'm kind of banking on the fact uh, that no one ever gets done with everything that we're supposed to cover in Sunday school and Bible study. Okay, I've got one witness there. Uh, And so hopefully this won't be too much of a rehash. And hopefully it will be particularly relevant or applicable in light of what we do this morning for communion and the Lord's Supper. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 11 verses 47 through 53. We're picking up the story immediately after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And if we can go back just a couple of verses before we read the paragraph that we're going to be focusing on this morning... If you go back to 11.45, it says, Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, in other words, who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And then we pick up with verse 47. Therefore, because the Pharisees have gotten this report of Jesus raising a dead man back to life, therefore... The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people." And that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. But being high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only. But that he might also gather together into one. The children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on they planned together to kill him. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray that you would fill us with joy and delight in what it is that we see in the pages of Scripture because of what it reveals about your wisdom and your glory and how that glory is shown most clearly and specifically in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to marvel at the mystery of your will that for ages past was hidden and yet now in the fullness of time and the coming of Jesus has been revealed um, a wisdom that we see and look upon in a way that even the Old Testament prophets couldn't even begin to conceive of. Father, may we welcome the truth as we hear it and may we grow in our affections for you and in our desire to follow you by following the path of your Son. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
As I was reading this, um, this paragraph, considering um, what we would do with it in the morning service, one of the things that struck me is um, the repetition of a word that comes at the beginning of the paragraph and then almost at the end. And you miss it, most of us probably miss it, I did anyway, in, uh, in your English translation. It's a word that means to gather, all right? So, if you're in verse uh, 47, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, so it probably sounds different from some of what you're reading from. But New American Standard translates verse 47 this way, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. That word for convene there in New American Standard is the sunago word, which means they gathered a council. It's also where you get the idea of a synagogue, a gathering. So, word about Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead gets out. It comes to the Pharisees, and the first thing that the Pharisees do is they gather themselves together to plot and to scheme. You know right from the outset, well, you, you already know, based on the opposition and the conflict that's been going on between Jesus and the religious leaders through the Gospel of John, you already know that they're not going to be gathering for any good purpose. And, of course, John lets us in on this secret council that's been gathered together to know what it is that they're planning to do in light of the continuing evidence of Jesus' power and divine appointment. But then you have this same word show up again towards the end of the paragraph when you get to verse 52, where it says that Jesus will not die for the nation, speaking of Israel, will not die for Israel only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. Same, same word there. So at the beginning, we've got a gathering of the enemies of God's anointed king trying to determine how we're going to handle him. How are we going to stop people from flocking to him? And, what, and the paragraph that starts off with a gathering of this enemy ends or concludes by acknowledging the fact that even though the enemies of God are gathering together and making their plans and taking counsel together, ultimately that's not going to stop or thwart the plans of God. Because by the time you get to the end, what you have is not a story of the enemies of God gathered and victorious, but you have a statement of the victory of God over His enemies, which is displayed or revealed in the fact that His children have been gathered together. Do you, do you see that? Okay. My, my question will not question because I think it's pretty obvious. What, what I want to do this morning, what we need to do is to look at how do you go from, how do you get from a gathering of enemies to a gathering of God's children, all right? And at the heart of this, unmistakable in the way that John plays this out and the way that he narrates this episode in the story, at the heart of this, the key... The hinge, as it were, is a substitution. In order to go from rebels, in order to go from enemies to reconciled children, there has to be some sort of change in the center. There has to be a change in the middle by which enemies give way to children. 
And that's, that's what we're going to do. Okay? So, just breaking it down into three parts then. Enemies gathering, a glimpse into God's plan, which is the plan of a substitutionary atonement, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then the third point being God's children gathered. I want you to look at verses 47 and 48 to start with. When word comes back to the, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, that Jesus had just raised a dead man, they gather together, right? This, you know, powwow. What are we going to, what are we going to do with him? And they, and they acknowledge, listen, th- things are not looking up for us. No matter what we try to do in terms of trying to entrap him with trick questions or trying to catch him in sin or anything like that, nothing seems to work. And in fact, it seems like the miracles and the signs that he's performing are only getting bigger and more pronounced, right? So that in John's gospel, short of the resurrection of Christ himself after the crucifixion, the greatest sign that Jesus does is the raising of Lazarus. It's the clearest indication until Jesus will be raised from the dead himself. It's the clearest indication that Jesus is the anointed king the chosen Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. Which makes this all the more interesting because when the Pharisees gather together and the, and, the, and the Sadducees and they get this council together, notice the concern for them is not whether or not the report is true. Do you see that? They take for granted that he actually did raise a man from the dead. They don't even dispute that. Right? Report comes, Jesus just raised a dead man. Their response, we got to do something with this guy. They don't deny the truth. They recognize the veracity, they recognize the truth, they recognize the sign, and yet their response is not to accept it. Not only do they reject it, but they also now plot and plan and scheme as to how they can do away with the truth, how they can suppress it. Let me go to a second part in these first couple verses before we tie some of these things together. Notice what the fear of this gathering is. They recognize, they know the truth that Jesus has raised someone from the dead, but it doesn't matter. They're bent and determined on putting down Jesus. And they say this, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Maybe an overstatement, but shows probably their sense of fear as to this momentum that they see building. All men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There's a lot of irony that works its way through John's gospel. A lot of times, not necessarily, you know, with bells and whistles, but as you read, you you pick up on some of these things. So Jesus has just given life to a dead man, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are concerned about what's going to be taken from them. Most specifically, what they cite is the Romans will come, right? If this messianic fervor, if they recognize here is the king we've been waiting for, who's going to free God's people and reestablish the nation, 
then the Romans are going to come in like they always do when there's a rebellion that rises up. They're going to come in and they're going to snuff this rebellion out. And in snuffing out the rebellion led by this Nazarene, we stand to lose our place and our nation. Now, the nation part we can understand, right? They'll destroy the nation. What what do they mean by we'll lose our place? When I read for the first time, my initial thought was they're thinking, we'll lose our place, we'll lose our standing, like we'll lose our place of authority or, right, our our position over the people. You know, but then you do a little bit more reading and studying, and that's probably not what they're talking about. Actually, what they're probably talking about when they talk about the Romans will come and take our place and our nation, the place that they're referring to is the temple, So they know what's happened in history, right? When the Babylonians come in in the, in the Old Testament era to finally put down Judah because of their constant rebellions and trying to break away, they destroy the temple and they level it to the ground. They know that if there's a popular uprising, a national uprising, that the Romans are going to have to respond furiously and that the key sign, symbol of the people, right? The temple will be destroyed along with the nation being destroyed. Now, here's part of the irony that works its way through this conversation. The temple for Israel is the place. In the Old Testament, um, as far back as Exodus, God talks about the place where He will cause His name to dwell, the place where my glory will dwell with my people, right? It's the place. It's almost so holy that you can't even talk about it. You just call it the place, and everyone knows what you're talking about. The place then, the place of the temple, is meant to be that spot, that central focal point of the nation where God dwells in the midst of His people, right? That's the whole purpose of the tabernacle, starting back with Moses, and then all the way up through the building of Solomon's temple and beyond. The Lord demands, commands a dwelling place to be built for him so that he can dwell, his presence can dwell in the midst of his people. So when they say, if we don't do something with Jesus, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take our place away. They're going to take away the temple. They're going to destroy it. They totally miss the fact that elsewhere Jesus has said things like, I tell you the truth, something greater than the temple is here. Right? Back in Matthew. What does he mean by that? How is Jesus greater than the temple? Well, the simple answer is in the same way that the temple was meant to be the house in which God dwelled among His people, Jesus is saying that now has been surpassed by the actual presence of God walking in your midst. So in the rebellion that the Pharisees are showing here, they're essentially choosing the place over the actual person. Do you see that? We would rather have the symbol of God's presence rather than the actual substance of God's presence. We'd rather have the place than the actual presence in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see how all this kind of heightens again 
Just the cynicism, the depravity of this rebellion. They don't deny the truth about what Jesus has done. They tacitly acknowledge it, and yet they're trying to suppress it by suppressing Jesus. And when it comes down to it, they're more concerned about keeping this symbol of God's presence than the fact that they would be willing to wake up and acknowledge the fact that they actually have the presence of God right in front of them. And at this point, right, all of us enlightened Christians, we look and we shake our heads at the Pharisees. Oh, those rotten guys, right? This is human nature. This is Romans 1, where Paul says, for example, that since the beginning of creation, all mankind has known that there is a God who created them. They know and they see clearly the evidence of his existence and his power and his divine attributes. And yet, what do they do? Paul says, not only do they turn their back on that knowledge and that truth, but they then go a step further and they actively work to try to suppress that truth. Not only do they try to deny it, they actually then try to press it down and hide it. But then, just like we're seeing here, right, symbol over substance, a place over the actual presence... Because man recognizes the truth about the existence of God, His glory, His divine attributes, he begins to go into various expressions of idolatry, right? So that Paul says in Romans 1, exchanging the truth for a lie, they begin to worship the created rather than the Creator. They would rather have, in other words... And according to Paul in Romans 1, they would rather have a God of their own making, a symbolic God, rather than the actual God who created them. Because at their core, in their heart of hearts, they're rebellious. Let's change that. At their core, in their heart of hearts, we are rebellious. This is, what what you see going on here in this brief little paragraph of the Pharisees, this is the way that humankind operates, so long as they're fighting against the supremacy of Christ. Now, the way that the Pharisees do it, they just just are rebels with a religious veneer, right? They, They couch it in certain terms or liturgy or practices or whatever else, but we have our own ways of masking rebellion as well, right? At this particular day and age, we hide our rebellion by saying that we're seekers, right? I I just want to know what's out there. I don't want to be so close-minded as to say that there actually is one authoritative word of truth, because that would be too narrow, too close. It's rebellion, It's having the truth presented to you and saying, I'd rather not take it. But then this same remnant of rebellion, of waywardness, is still something that we even now battle as the people of God, right? We're we're not immune from being tempted and lured away into our own idolatrous pursuits, right? 
I'll keep the appearance of Christ or the symbol of God. But that's really all I want because I really want to keep fill in the blank. If I let Christ have his way, if I let Christ rule and reign and take his rightful place over my life, I may never get married. Therefore, let me chip away at the authority of the king, keep some appearance of being a religious subject, but yet hold on to my rights, my preference. If I allow Jesus to have his way, if I let him keep going without stepping in, right, I may not get the promotion, I may lose social standing, culture, neighbor, societies, friend, whatever, right? I'll lose that, so let me keep the veneer of Christianity or following Christ. But really, I just want something of the symbol without the substance. And you see this in local church gatherings as well. When you become so consumed with things like a place or a program or certain people over the person of Christ. It's a heart of rebellion. So we go to the next part where even though they recognize the truth, they're rebelling against it, ultimately rebelling against Christ because he is the truth. They would rather have, when everything is said and done, they would rather keep the appearance of God in the form of the temple rather than actually have God in their presence ruling and reigning over them. Again, another sign of a heart of rebellion. And then you come to this statement in verses 49 through 51. Caiaphas, who's the high priest, speaks up and says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You do not take into account, verse 50, that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Caiaphas says, listen, you, you guys are, are missing the simple solution to the problem. We're worried about what the Romans are going to do to us if we submit and follow Christ. But if we exchange the nation for one man, we can get rid of him and keep the people. We can keep the nation. We can get rid of him and keep the temple. So there's just no way around the fact that what's at the heart of the death of Christ is a substitutionary sacrifice. You, there are other aspects to the death of Christ, right? It, you can't deny the fact that Christ gives us an example to follow, right? Greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. That's, that's an example worth following, you can't deny the fact that in dying, Christ is paying a ransom to win back his people from the ownership of sin and death and the devil. But at the heart of all of this, ultimately, is a substitutionary death. It's one man standing in the place of all the other men. It's either the people or a person. 
which is going to be the greater loss, which is going to be the greater sacrifice. And the Pharisees say, we'd rather lose the person than lose the people. Again, evil, wicked, depraved, rebellious. But then, when it seems like it cannot get any more evil or perverse or sinister, John throws in this statement about what Caiaphas has just said. Caiaphas is encouraging all of them to use Jesus as a scapegoat for their own benefit, for their own advantage, and for what they think is going to be the betterment, perhaps, of the nation. And then John says in verse 51, now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. This he did not say, a a more stiff translation would be something like, this he did not say from himself, or he didn't say it out of his own thinking only. Okay, so if Caiaphas says, I got it, let's trade Jesus for the nation, Let's, let's let's have him die at the hands of the Romans rather than have the nation destroyed... If Caiaphas doesn't say that on his own, where does it come from? You you know. If Caiaphas does not say this on his own initiative, where does it come from? It comes from God. So that right when... This little cabal is reaching the depths of rebellion in their scheming and planning. John says, you know what? But all of this was by design, even down to the very words that the high priest Caiaphas uttered. Even that was not mere human planning. How how is an enemy ever going to defeat its opponent if even their plans are orchestrated by the ones they're trying to defeat? Do you see? Yes? No? All right. Acts chapter 4. Hold your place here. Go to Acts chapter 4. After the fact, this comes through loud and clear. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. This is after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The apostles now are on the scene. They've been threatened not to preach about a resurrected Messiah anymore. And after they've been threatened, they go back to, the, to another gathering of fellow Christians And in part, they say this in Acts 4, 27, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you did anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. John says... That when Caiaphas says, we need to trade this man for the nation, John says, yeah, he said that, but he was speaking better than what he knew. This man who at 
the moment in which he is thinking most intently on rebellion and establishing a coup against the anointed king, even at that very moment, John says, even the plans and the advice that he uttered was nothing less than the predetermined plan of God. How then in the world will God's enemies ever thwart God's plan? How can they do it? Listen, and this is, this is not, I mean, this, first and foremost, this is huge because we see over and over and over again that the death of Christ was not an accident. It was purposeful, it was planned, it was intentional, and that even while men and women are guilty for their rebellion and their sin, nevertheless, even their sin does not trump the reign of God over His people and His creation, right? But it also then plays a significant role into how we, as the disciples of Christ, as the children of God, even view the way that our lives play itself out in the shadow and in the footsteps of Christ. Let me, let me show you just briefly two places where this same idea comes up, just in not so many words. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, start at verse 28. Paul's calling on the Philippians to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel that they've been called by. And he says this in 128. In no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. What does Paul mean when he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents? Because when, when you see the opponents gathering, amassing against you, and you're not alarmed, you don't tremble, you don't shake, you don't lose your nerve, you don't abandon the name of Christ, you don't repudiate. When that happens, that's a sign of your salvation and of their destruction. What does he mean by that? He means that in the same way that John tells us, even when the enemies, even when the opponents of God plan to do harm to Christ... Even then, they were furthering the purposes of God. Paul says, that's exactly what's happening to you. When opponents, people who oppose the person of Christ, the cause of Christ, oppose his church, when they rise up against you, this is not accidental. This is not God waiting to see what's going to happen and then saying, oh my gosh, in a frantic, panic sort of way, I've got to do something to help them out. No, you take in yourself the same mindset that we see exhibited in John's account, which says, even when they come against Christ and His people, even then they're only furthering the purposes of God. 
right? So Paul says, for to you it has been granted, it's a gift, not just to believe, but even to suffer. God gives to his people not just the right to believe on his name, but he also gives them the privilege of suffering, of encountering opposition, so that a sign of this cosmic battle would be put on display throughout his creation. And Paul says, when you recall that even the plans of the enemy ultimately further God's plans and you are not shaken by their opposition, that's a sign of your ultimate victory. And at the same time, a sign of their ultimate destruction because nothing that they do or say will ultimately be able to thwart God's rule, God's reign, or destroy his people. Turn to 1 Peter. One more, brief one. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter's talking about following in the example of Christ, who suffered even though he had done nothing wrong. And at a certain point, he says this, picking up in 1 Peter 3, 13. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Stop right there for a second. I could give Peter a list in answering that question. Couldn't you? Peter, what in the world are you talking about? Who is there to harm us if we prove zealous for doing good? Well, Peter, right now, there's a guy named Nero. He's going to see to it that he harms you and that you actually die. There are people in the community. There's this, there's that, right? Who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing good? In other words, Peter is saying, if you are called according to the purpose of God in the person of Jesus Christ... Who's going to stop you? Who's going to hurt you? But then he adds this in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, okay, there are people out there who want to do you harm, but if they do harm to you for following Christ, for doing what is good, you are blessed. How does the people of God, how do the people of God lose when even the opposition that's brought against them just means that they get greater reward. How how are we getting the raw end of the deal there? So within the framework of Christ, because our life is hidden in Him, we're being invited to see that whether it's human opposition or the, the frailty of our human flesh, sickness, disease attitudes, institutions, whatever it is, right? It's like Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Even when they plot and scheme, not only do they further the purposes of God, but as they carry out God's purposes, even when they oppress you, they're just adding greater blessing and greater reward to your account. Because you're suffering for the cause of Christ. So, in this brief mention from Caiaphas, at the heart of all of this, 
what changes, what starts off as a plot, rebellion against God, into ultimately a gathering of God's children, what starts as rebellion and ends in reconciliation, what lies at the heart of it is actually spoken by one of the foremost enemies of God in the person of Caiaphas. We must exchange one man for the nation. He spoke the counsel of God, and he didn't even know it. He spoke better than what he knew. Stay in John chapter 11, if you would, as we transition. Here's the, here's the relevance of what we're talking about to the Lord's Supper. Part of the irony is not just that the high priest, who is fully bent and determined in rebelling against God, actually accomplishes the purposes of God. That's, that's ironic. The rebel works on behalf of the one that he's rebelling against. The other bit of irony is that even when he speaks the counsel of God, he still doesn't speak well enough. He doesn't speak big enough. Because from the vantage point of Caiaphas and the rest of the leaders in this little rebellious gathering... All that they see is what exists in their little bubble, right? Their little piece of real estate. They're thinking in terms of zip code. They're thinking in terms of ethnicity. They're thinking in terms of the Israelite nation. John tells us, though, at verse 52... That not only would Jesus die for the nation, that was true, but he would die that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who, Who is that? Gentiles. Or, more pointedly, us. In this simple statement that John makes here, when he says he's going to die for the nation, but also to gather the children of God that are scattered abroad, this, this is another little subtle dig, subtle piece of irony, because the description here, the children of God who are scattered abroad, that's Old Testament exile language, right? Right? When, when God has to judge the sin of His people and He says, judgment is going to be most pronounced when I scatter you to the four winds and I cast you out of my presence. That started all the way back in the garden. Man rebels against God and they're expelled from His sight. Scattered. God calls a people for Himself. They rebel, they sin. As a result of their sin, the judgment is that God scatters them 
amongst the nations, and yet all the way through the prophetic witness in the Old Testament, God is always coming back and saying, but there's coming a time when all those people who are scattered, all my people, I'm going to gather them back together into one. John picks up on that language and would have us understand that the scattering of Israel and their regathering into one people is not just the story of Israel, it's the story of all humanity. That the story of the human race is one in which a people filled with rebels, God-haters, profane and idolatrous people are expelled from the presence of God, put into exile because of their sin and their rebellion, and then in the grace and the mercy of God, God says, but I have purposed and planned to redeem those rebellious people. I'm going to buy them back out of their slavery to sin. I'm going to become their owner and master, and I'm going to gather them back to myself so that now, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, all of the good promises that we see even in the Old Covenant, promises of restitution and hope and restoration, are things that we now can, ad- can adopt for ourselves because of the fact that we've been adopted by Christ. So when Caiaphas says, one man must die for the nation, and John adds, well, not just for the nation, but for all of God's children who are scattered, John would have us understand that as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, he sees this gathering on Sunday morning. And here's the tie-in with communion. We come together, we gather together in some way reenacting this big biblical story by which God takes the people who are scattered abroad and gathers them all together in one place. That's one of the reasons why we come and get together. We identify with the gracious gathering of God's children. That's what we're doing now. And then we reenact the last supper that the Lord has with His disciples where He talks about the death that's going to make that gathering, that renewal possible. And we say we're identifying ourselves by that sacrificial, by that substitutionary death. The reason that we are here is because we are in Christ. We have been gathered together as one people through the person of Jesus Christ. So don't think, as you go through our time of communion now, don't just think of this as just mere repetition or empty formalism or tradition. This is a reenacting of the wisdom of God, the power of God, showing His victory over His enemies, all for His glory and for the good of His people as He gathers them together to enjoy His rule and His reign in the person of Christ.